Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 149 and this episode is with sports scientist and strength conditioning coach Jack Fay. Jack came on to talk about the transition for academy players through to first team um, and some of the considerations that we need to make to ensure that players are ready to take that step up. We spoke about the progression of players throughout their age groups through the academy as well. We also then went on to talk about his work in end-stage rehab and also how his role um, included more work around end-stage rehab and with, with injured players getting them back to full fitness. And then we also touched on tying in with end-stage rehab. We spoke about how he utilised football circuits and Jack broke that down for us as well so some great information in this one around um, academy uh, working with academy players long-term athletic development but also um, end-stage rehab with first team players as well so I hope you enjoy this episode just a very quick reminder we've got two networking events coming very soon depending when you're listening to this podcast Thursday the 19th of August, we're going to be at the New York Stadium at Rotherham with Ross Burberry and Tom Scoopian presenting for us. Um, Tickets are still available for that event. Um, And then on the 31st, Tuesday the 31st of August, we're going to be at Preston North End's training ground at Exton um, with Preston sports scientist Luke Hemmings and also Liam Anderson. Um, So really looking forward to both events. Early bird tickets are still available for the Preston event and then tickets are still available for the Rotherham event and you can get your tickets by going to footballfitfed.com, clicking the shop tab and then you'll see the tickets available in the shop. And just a very quick reminder that all community, football fitness community members get further discount on the events as well. So if you are a member go to the member benefits section of the community and you'll be able to see some discount codes that will get you money off those tickets as well. So I hope to see as many of the listeners there as possible. There's been some great uptake on the Rotherham event so far and we've only just released the Preston one. So really looking forward to getting the events going um, for the rest of the year as well. Let's get into the podcast now. So episode 149 with Jack Fay. Welcome back to episode 149 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast sports scientist Jack Fay. Jack, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Ben. Yeah, thanks for thank you very much for the opportunity to come on and, and speak. No, it's great to have you on, mate, and thank you for um, to Steve Barrett as well for the link up. Um, it, it'd be great to cover some of the stuff that we've got lined up today, um, but. Jack, do you want to just start us off true podcast style? Do you want to just give us a little bit of background on yourself? Absolutely, yeah. So um, so I went to uh, university back in 2006, um, which was at the time Leeds Metropolitan University, which has now changed to Leeds Beckett, which makes me feel old because the university has now changed its name and <laughs> so I'll be out of the archives now and... <clears throat> Um, so yeah, I went. I went and studied sport and exercise science. Um, and if the truth be told, I was I was really more interested in more of the clinical aspects and the clinical side of, of that kind of industry at the time. Um, 
I wasn't too focused on performance. Um, I had a real big interest in like the clinical application. So as I worked through, did more physiology-based uh, modules and, and nutrition, et cetera. Um, completed that and then went straight on to a master's in sport and exercise physiology, which then changed a bit more to become a bit more performance orientated. Um, whilst I did that, I was really lucky. I got a physiology internship with the university's performance center. Um, and basically I got to work with athletes from all different sports, which was so lucky really because I grew such an appreciation for different athletes, different mentalities, different approaches, different cues, um, and such a, a better understanding and appreciation for the physical qualities of different athletes. Uh, so for instance, like I worked with like the race walkers, which was at the time wasn't that well heard of, but when they were walking, you know, half marathons in one hour 30, you thought, wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah, never been able to do it. Never, didn't have a career in it. And I don't think I ever will. Um, so yeah, we, we worked in that, in that kind of domain. Um, we jumped a lot on the back of PhD projects. We helped a lot of people with their data collection and the university had recently put in an environmental chamber. So uh, one PhD candidate was doing a study at high altitude, which was good. I got to experience that. Um, got as high as 6,300 meters. Um, which was nice and then another one was doing some more work on like hydration so work in the heat exercise um, sort of exercise responses in, in heat with regard to hydration and, and we did the, the race walk as a climatization protocol for the Delhi Commonwealth Games as well um, and one of them actually won the gold medal which was which was nice um, I don't think I was credited with any of that but I did all the switching on and all of the sort of dirty donkey work that's associated with your internships back then. Um, <laughs> so yeah, as that year finished and I, I completed my master's, I worked for the university and as like a physiology project officer. Um, again, doing similar kind of roles, but on a, on a more paid basis. Uh, I did a bit of learning support work, which gave me some more lab experience with bits of teaching and delivery of things like VO2 max testing, blood sampling, etc. Um, and little bits of part-time lecturing, um, but it wasn't quite enough financially to, to sort of pay the bill. So I worked a few other positions. I worked with Castleford Tigers, um, where I worked from like, academy to start with, and then had some influence, like some opportunities to work with the first team, which was really good. Uh, you know, I took a big interest in strength and conditioning around that time, and rugby being really physically dominant and such a high emphasis on that I got a, a real good chance to see how it worked and to try and shape some practice around that and develop my coaching and again working with you know with big big strong athletes really intimidating some of them it, it, you know it, it brought out a little bit more bravery and courage about me as well and, and, and brought on a bit of charisma as well and I think that was like really important I'd learned all that theoretical aspects but being able to deliver it was really important particularly in a, a room full of rugby players of different nationalities and yeah big dominant alpha males in the room that was a really good process for me um managed to do a bit with the rfl as like a, an athlete development uh, coach and that was working with like the regional sort of level athletes and 
then liaising with uh, grassroots coaches to try and just try and drop drip feed some of the strength and conditioning services to grassroots so that they could continue it. Um, that was nice. And then from there, I moved to Sunderland Football Club, um, where my main responsibility was monitoring the training loads and match loads by GPS um, with in the academy system. So working with the under 23s, under 18s. And then I got to also then deliver strength and conditioning to like the school boys then, like the under uh, nines or under 16s come at evening time. So that was my first break into football and, and, and such a fantastic place to work. Sunderland have got fantastic facilities and we had a really good staff there. It was a, it was a big team. Everybody was housed together. Um, and that's great. It, it, you know, I'd worked in rugby, which is a slightly different dynamic to football. Um, and it did it challenge me on all different areas. It's become a little bit more savvy with field-based work over gym work. And again, a lot more sort of work around growth and maturation. Um, so yeah, a really good learning curve and some fantastic staff there who helped shape us and challenged everything that I put forward and made me think twice about anything that I was putting forward and suggesting. Um, and following that, I then got an opportunity to join Bolton Wanderers, um, which again was a, a big team, a big medical team, um, a real blend of kind of experienced ex-players, um, youth, uh, innovative coaches. So that was really good to sort of be in that department and feed off those different kind of personalities and took some of the old experiences that I had and stuff that I'd learned at Sunderland. Um, and then, yeah, fitted in, into that. And as time progressed, um, I had an opportunity to then become more involved in like the first team in terms of uh, program and design and delivery, um, which was fantastic. Uh, that's the kind of the missing link. I've done a lot of academy stuff in football, um, but not quite done it with first team. And I was lucky because I managed to sort of keep my academy role, but then bit across both camps. Um, you know, I had some really good kind of mentors there who, who gave me opportunity, trusted us, and but challenged us in the right way as well. Um, and then I did a little bit more with the first team, which kind of led us into, whilst the kind of head of sports science was leading the team and the sort of performance system, I then liaised more with physios to support the kind of end-stage rehab, really. Um, so, yeah, that, there were some really good experiences where I got to kind of work in the performance systems, the long-term athletic development, but also that kind of end-stage rehab and and get a bit more appreciation for kind of their approach and how they put their systems in place as well. So I've been really, I've been really lucky. I've worked with some fantastic people and some very different systems where I've managed to pick great bits from each. So, and I and hopefully the, my next position will, will give us that again. So yeah, we're right, so we're right saying, Jack, that when you first went into Bolton, then it was it was more academy based, and then because um, obviously we're going to touch on end stage rehab so, um, just shortly, but initially when you went in to the role at Bolton, was that based with the academy? Yeah, that's right. Yes, my position was um, senior academy sports scientist, so I was looking after the under twenty ones as it was termed at the time. 
um, but also having an influence over under 18s right down. So, yeah, it was predominantly that. Um, we were split over two sites, um, but there was times when we were at the same venue as the first team and the, the fitness staff were really accommodating in the sense that if there was free time, I was welcome into their environment. And I think as well as an extra pair of eyes and eyes and hands and, you know, that obviously helps. But yeah, I managed to support them, you know, when and where I could in terms of delivery. But, but they handled a lot of the programming just because I wasn't always there to be in the conversation. Yeah, definitely. And it'd be great to get your, your thoughts on because obviously seeing both sides of it from being based with the academy and then, and then moving into work with the first team, the transition that players face from going through the academy age groups, and we'll go into maybe some of the younger age groups in a little bit, but more towards the, the older age groups from academy into first team. So what do you think are some important considerations that we need to make to ensure that players are ready to take that step? Yeah, that's, it's a really good question. And I think we've I've certainly learned a lot from that over the years where um, sort of one of the earlier things we spotted was that players were going up a lot of the time to, to train with the first team, but then they were missing out on, on lots of game time. And that's really like their biggest learning curve. They learn an awful lot transitioning from the academy into the first team with the greater physical demands, the greater decision-making, clearly a, a little bit of nerves as well with the first team manager watching them, um, coupled with, with a lot of excitement as well. Um, mm. the, the big thing we sort of spotted earlier was things like lack of game time and always trying to make sure that we were organised in the sense that if they weren't, participating in some sort of competitive match play could we facilitate that somewhere in the line and and that it became a little bit of a balancing act because it then often meant that they were losing days off to then join up with other teams and play and train but I think the big thing for us as a backroom staff was to make sure that we we're always clear in our communication and players always had the exposure to, to match play um, from then Moving on was, you know, try and push things like additional recovery methods for them. Um, you know, they, it's such a thrill for a young player to go and play and train with the first team. And so often you often see they, they come back and I ran the most. I got the highest GPS figures and, <laughs> and rightly so. Like, it's such a thrill. Like, I would, if, if I got to train with the first team, don't think I would have any technical influence on the session. But from a physical point, I'd be excited. I'd you know have a real go and so there's a little bit more energy expenditure used with them and obviously a little bit more muscle damage the adrenaline is still running after training so it's really important to try and push home some of those additional recovery methods with them and you know make sure that they can recover and repeat if they need to and hopefully that you know they do go back in um and and you know trying to balance some of their overall training load so you know when they were going into the sort of field-based work does the gym work need any particular modification so could we push them as hard in the gym because of the added load there did we maybe need to take something out or just adjust something slightly um just to make sure that we weren't kind of burning the candle at both ends um 
and then I guess the other one, the final one really is, you know, that kind of psychological support network, really. You know, we have players who go up, they do really well, and then either maybe a player return from injury or new signing have come in, or they just came back to the academy for, you know, for a different reason. And, and it's then supporting the player then to try and, you know, take some of that disappointment and like re-galvanise them and, you know, get them back thriving again to what got them into that first team environment. That's always a hard thing, I think. Yeah, definitely. I was actually reading something just before we, we came on about um, a, a player in particular that has gone into a first team last year, probably sooner than what they'd thought just because of the situation at the club. And then had the whole off-season to really work. And he was talking about how much he focused physically in the gym. So it's interesting, isn't it, that they get into the first-team environment and then they sort of... It seems like some players then shift the priority onto, oh, I need to get stronger because I've sort of experienced now what it's like. And that importance is sort of highlighted a bit more, isn't it? Because they've had that experience. Absolutely, yeah. And... And, you know, you can't capture everybody with your messages. and But sometimes that is the big driver when they go and or are up against this player and, and he's just he's put his foot down, left me for dead. I need to get stronger or I got bullied at this. And, yeah, that, that is, it's great, really, because I think it, it does. It gives them that, I guess, dose of reality, doesn't it, where they realise and go, oh, you know what? I've watched them before and it doesn't look that quick or that strong. and but when you're in it, it, it's totally different and it does. And it, that's such a, a good like opportunity for us as uh, sports scientists, strength and conditioning coaches or any form of backroom staff to say, you know, how did you find it? And, you know, ask them questions and, you know, it gives them a, a lot of self-worth when they get to share their experience. But then, you know, kind of lead them to what did you find hard in there? And do you think we can help you down the line of that? And and that's, that's worked quite well for us in the past. It's been a really good strategy to say, all right, well, let's do, let's do more of that. So when you go next time, you'll be more prepared and you'll cope better. Yeah, 100%. And that, that's the role um, of a coach, isn't it? To not have anything in terms of too rigid because that experience from that player might be different for, if you take 10 players, it could be different for all 10 players, couldn't it? And you've got to treat the player for what they're, what, you've got to listen to the player in terms of the feedback they're giving back to you and then and then act and um, basically try and in, advise in the best way possible, haven't you? But that that advice isn't always going to be the same player to player, is it? Absolutely, yeah. Like you say, we, we've got players that have gone into environments like the first team and just absolutely taken off and like we've never seen them again. Yeah. And we've had others that have had a little bit of like disappointment in there they've not maybe performed as well they've struggled in certain tasks or maybe like the 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 occasions got a little bit too much for them they've gone in with too much hype and overthought things and not done what they're good at and yeah like you say you, you sort of some are some are on the ceiling some are on the floor and yeah it's it's really difficult to try and gauge where some of them are and but yeah it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to to then drive home like your influence but like I say your, your typical things like your rigid structure and your periodization kind of go out the window with your your guys who are between squads but do you know what that's, that's a, I like that about the industry at, at times you know that's 
that's what makes a good practitioner, isn't it? The ability to adapt and, you know, just programs accordingly. And yeah, I think, I think that's always quite good. Yeah, 100%. And then looking more at like the younger ages as they transition from age group to age group, I think that's an interesting um, place to look at, isn't it? Because obviously there's different progressions going on. There's a lot of, like you were talking about growth and maturation before, in those younger ages, it becomes even more apparent, doesn't it, that every player is different. Like we're dealing with a lot of individuals within a team. So what was the what was the sort of general approach for making sure that the it was it was seamless in terms of the transition between age groups, but for each each player? I think like uh, like the education was like a really big factor in that, um, and that spread across kind of like not just the player, but also to coach and to parent as well. Um, I think that the, the, the opportunity we took to speak to parents and, you know, provide that little bit of information on what's happening in terms of, you know, your son is mature and he's going through these particular changes. This is a, what's likely to affect him. He's going to need to adjust this in his diet. This is what's going to likely going to happen in his training. Um, these, fact, these risk factors are heightened. And I think that kind of helps because, the, the parents' expectations became a little bit more managed. Um, and they could kind of understand if there was a, a drop in performance or if there was a change in like their, mo- their mood or their mentality, it was because of sort of changes in their, in their biological system. The players, are obviously, they, they, it was really important for them because they experience it firsthand, um, whether that's, you know, a, a drop in things like coordination, um, increased pain or, you know, things like that, changes in things like their appetite or their overall mood. Um, and then, and again, different to the coaches, it was, I think, what certainly I was maybe guilty of in the past was, you know, you talk about maturation and a player's injuries being heightened and it changed over time to, can we like, can we keep you in training but change the emphasis? Because it certainly got the coaches back up really when you, you then go in, oh, well, this player's come out, this player's come out. And, you know, you're under 14s. When they're all going for a growth spurt, you know, as it could happen, you know, you can't pull the whole team out of training. But, you know, it, it was about maybe finding, I became better at finding solutions and, and that was really good. I worked with some really good people with that. Um, you know, Steve Jones was, was, was one of the best I'd worked with at that. And his ability to then think of performance solutions. Um, so, you know, one of the big things was like, could we get players to share workloads? So, for instance, and it sometimes helps if you've got an odd number, um, you know, see, or an even number, so you can double people up. Um, but if you were doing, if the coach was doing a condition game, um, or a, you know any sort of training training game that was kind of explosive. Um, could you get players to kind of share that that workload at half and half? So they were in the session, but they weren't doing the full amount. Or then could you then adjust it? Could they do some kind of straight line work where we're reducing like the change of direction, the mechanical demands on them, um, and the the physio like medical department worked really hard in that respect. They devised different types of 
additional prehab work, so uh, ankle, knee, hip, back. Um, and a lot of that was built around symptoms. If people started getting any symptoms, they had kind of additional work to do with corrective exercise around there. And yeah, it was, it was, it's really, like I say, it's so important to get, to try and keep the young athletes moving along that journey. Um, and, you know, we try and, we target it through many areas where that was education to different stakeholders, um, trying to keep them in training, but put a particular emphasis on a trainable quality um, and whilst reducing their injury risk and then also supporting the athlete from, you know, an athletic development point of view, could we then retrain that movement if it had deteriorated, or not deteriorated, but if it had, if it had altered? Yeah. No, it's a great point because it, it pleases everyone that, doesn't it? It keeps the player involved in the group because there's nothing worse than seeing a player sat away from the pitch like by themselves or being stuck in the gym by themselves. Like psychologically, that's that's damaging. And obviously, there's times that that needs to happen, isn't there, with certain injuries and things. But to keep them involved as much as possible is a must, isn't it? So having the yeah. skill to adapt and also use your um your peers your fellow like coaches and and physios and staff and work together and and be able to manipulate sessions like you've talked about or add extra bits in before there's a that's where you get real probably buy-in from the player but real success in terms of long term don't you with with that player as well absolutely and it was one of the best things that we, that we ever did in the sense that we almost allowed people, well, we, we made people part of the process, you know, like you, like you really well put there. If, if you're a part of it, you're more likely to buy into it. And, and the coaches, like we needed to give the coaches more credit than, than what they got because, you know, they are like the good coaches, like they can adapt sessions and they're always having to adapt sessions, particularly in the younger ages, because more often than not, they're coming in at night and during the day they've got their squad. They know who they've got. But something happens during the day, whether it's something at school, a, a, a young lad's taken ill, uh, mum and dad can't get him there. And they're always having to flip the sessions based on that. So, you know, nothing's quite changed. Um, you know, so we, we kind of challenged the coaches in that respect to say, you know, this player's got heightened, potentially heightened injury risk is there a way you can maybe adapt your training so that it gets the technical and tactical demands that you want and that the team want and that player needs? But is there a way we can maybe protect him from the really kind of high chaos, explosive work that, that might cause, that might be a little bit too much stress for him? And the same with the player, just because we, we, just because we had a player that was particularly going through growth didn't always mean that they came out you know, sometimes they can go through this and, and be pain-free, you know, and it, it didn't mean that they did the most demanding work. But, you know, if there were times where they were okay, we allowed them to continue and, and push through. Yeah. Um, but it was that constant, like, relay back and player, coach, support team and parent as well, just to make sure that, you know, there were no mixed messages or cross wires and, yeah, it was really important. The coaches were, were really good at that, definitely. I suppose it's like that transparency with everyone, isn't it? And you mentioned about parents before, which we could probably have a whole different discussion about. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the, 
these are you i think you've called them stakeholders and it's exactly right like everyone that's involved parents coaches the player um all support staff it's transparency with everyone isn't it and then if if you've created that and you've created that culture then because everyone's got the player's interest at heart haven't they if a player's if, if sorry if a parent yeah. even is questioning what you're doing with the player and they want them to do more or whatever I know some parents can be awkward and I'm speaking now as a parent, but um, you can, like, they've still got the best interest in mind for their their son or daughter, haven't they? So we have to understand that. But I think what you're saying, I think that transparency is the most important thing, isn't it? That this, this is what we need to do, or this is what we need to do, in my opinion. Can we adapt it in this way? And this is why. And this will also see us long-term, we're going to take, we're going to make better progressions by doing it. You know, absolutely. Like, like you say, everybody's got their best interest. And I think everybody knows something unique that fits into the piece. So, you know, we kind of understand an athletic development point of view. Here's where they need to get stronger and here's how we do it. A coach understands the, the football specific requirements. And I, re- I listened to it somewhere. I can't remember who said it, um, Somebody once said, and he went, the, the players know, the parents know the players better than anybody yeah. because they spend yeah. most time with them. And and you and they're right because they're almost all specialisms in one. They're, they are their technical coach because they watch, they've watched them all the years. They're their mm. psychologist. They're their chef. They're their dietitian. You know, they're their trainer. And, and they're so important to us because if they don't bring, if they can't get to training, we can't do anything with them. Yeah, um, so true. And... And, if, and we'd slowly moved away from, or not moved away, but we we expanded what we did in terms of support work to then include more parents. So we used to do your classic nutrition workshops with players with um, the psychology as well. And then it, it just kind of, we sat around one afternoon and we were having this conversation about parents going, oh, well, oh, yeah, this, this parent's like demanding this and, oh, that parent says that, but then the player says this. And we kind of thought, well, why don't we bring the parents into the equation? And like, rather than sometimes what appears working against them, and that was, you know, that was never intended. I think that's just through cross wires. Yeah. Could we then be a little bit more collaborative with them and, yeah, bring them into it? Because ultimately, like, nutrition, I think, is the best example. It's it's got certain mileage teaching a young athlete what's good food and that. But in reality, parent guardians make the meals. So if they don't, if the parents don't know what's good and bad, or what well, what's optimal is probably a better phrase, mm. it probably isn't going to be delivered to the child. So then mm. can we then one educate the child because eventually he's going to have to start preparing his own food and there's times when he's away from mum and dad and so can you make the right choices but also can we then influence parents to you know shape what the what the player eats to improve their health and it hasn't come without endless uh quest for parents diets then but if that's what it takes to get buy-in then fine that's no problem i'd rather spend an hour with a parent to say okay, right, so this is the general principle. This, you know, you should be looking at wholesome, healthy foods. You should be looking at lean protein sources, 
etc etc um and i think if you can, can shape their mentality towards it then it's you know that it's going to feed eventually down to the to the child but yeah it's really important like you said you got you have to be transparent but include them and like I, I always remember how good i felt in the past when either a coach or a line manager has empowered me to do something yeah and yeah. it's remembering that to say right can we then empower the parent to say right here's some like, really useful tips for nutrition. Here's what's going to help him because his body's growing. These changes are happening. So he's going to need to have a little bit more calories in his diet. He's going to start becoming a little bit leaner as he produces things like testosterone and growth hormone. So it's really important that we drive them foods into his diet. And, you know, because of well, the pandemic certainly helped, hasn't it? You know, with illness and things like that. Um, the importance of vitamins, minerals, looking at their overall health as well, and you know things like that. So yeah, we kind of rode the wave of that a bit, and and, we, and so far we had you know we've had some really good results with that. I just wanted to read a few testimonials from some of our community members um, around what we have created and our platform we've created. So Dave Tenney, um, high performance director at Austin Football Club. Um, he's wrote Football Fitness Federation has created an important online community to connect practitioners from all over the world to share and discuss ideas. I think it's an invaluable resource for people new to the industry and those who have years of experience. So big thanks to Dave for that one. We've also had um, Harry Routledge, who's now at Oxford United. He wrote the Football Fitness Federation has created an online community and resource that's accessible to practitioners worldwide. It's an invaluable resource, allowing practitioners to continue to learn and gain valuable knowledge from others. There is so many innovative and bright practitioners across the, across the globe. Having access to these people within a community is invaluable. So I really appreciate their feedback, but that is exactly why we created the community. And if you want to see what it's all about, and get access to all the content on there, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab at the top, and you sign up there, it'll give you a month free. After the free month, it's £4.99 per month going forward. So go and check it out, go and claim your free month, and join practitioners like Dave and Harry over on the uh, community, and there's plenty of other practitioners from right across the football world as well. Here's part two of the podcast with Jack Fay. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I, I fully agree. I think the parent has to be a big part of, of that because, I mean, I was only watching um, the Amazon uh, documentary of Tottenham last night and one of the players, well, Deli Alley, was saying that he couldn't eat. It was the first time he ever made beans. And I was like, wow. Yeah. Like, that's... that's a, but I need he's playing in the first team, played for England. And, and so that's what you're dealing with, isn't it? So... Getting that into the player when they're at academy level um, is so important. But I think in terms of the parents as well, it's just uh, in terms of society, I think nutrition gets so complicated, doesn't it? That parents yeah. genuinely, a lot of the time, are, are just confused because they've watched all these fad diets on TV or seen all this information. They're like, I don't really know what to believe. So if, if only, if obviously we want it to impact the player, but getting into the parent as well, overall, it's changing the whole approach and mindset around nutrition as well, isn't it? And I know we're going off on a bit of a tangent on nutrition now, but I think it is really important. 
Yeah, and that's it. And sometimes you have to drive something contemporary like that to then influence what your big message is, is in, okay, your child's going through a growth spurt. In terms of his athletic development, here's what we need to do. And like, you know, you are, you have to create the buying with the coach and with the athlete, but sometimes like you almost have to do it with the parent as well. And, you know, it does sometimes take longer, but you maybe do use a, you know, an interesting topic like nutrition or, you know, even something football related to kind of earn that trust. And, you know, because at the end of the day, we've known these, some of these lads, you know, in a couple of years, the parents have had them from, from the, from the minute, from minute one. And yeah, so yeah, it's, it is, like I say, it is invaluable, I think. And, and they're the big drivers, aren't they? Um, and not like you said, like Delhi Alley, not, not every youth footballer will turn out to be a, a really competent chef. But I think if they can make the right choices, then you're halfway there, aren't you? 100%. Just, yeah. You just, just hope they're making enough money to then they can go and hire a performance <laughs> chef themselves. That's what they're, I was going right to Yeah, 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 that's it. Um, well, we'll move it on, Jack, because I wanted to talk about as well the, the sort of transition of your role at Bolton, which I know you, you referenced a little bit before in terms of academy, getting involved with the first team, and then looking into more like end-stage rehab. Um, with the first teamers as well. So how did that come about? Like, was that just a sort of natural transition of the role or was that just something that was needed to be done at that time? Um, and also we'll, we'll just go into like your approach in terms of end-stage rehab as well. Yeah, so, I mean, it came about through, really came about through opportunity. And, you know, earlier on I said I was lucky and, and this is a prime example of it. Um and at the time, it was around 2014-15, I think the club had gone into administration. Uh, they had changed ownership. Um, and what happened at the time, I was one of two sports science staff that remained. Um, and at the time, we were about two weeks from the pre-season started. And we had no manager had been announced officially. And I started to think, oh, could, not could I have that job, but... I'd better be prepared because if that job's not taken, it'd be useful to have some kind of plans in place. Um, anyway, lo and behold, they, they did um, appoint someone. They appointed Phil Parkinson and, and with Phil came Nick Allenby. Um, and, you know, at the time when it first got announced, so, yeah, I have to be honest, I was a bit gutted because I thought I'd love to have taken that role. But in hindsight, and something that Frankie said in a couple of episodes, like really resonates with me. It, it was I was glad that I didn't. Now on reflection, I'm glad I didn't get that position because I wasn't ready. I needed to develop as a practitioner, and and Nick was fantastic in the respect that he gave me a lot of opportunity. He took the time to look at what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. He allowed me to then implement or sorry contribute what I was good at whilst trying to upskill me at some of the weaker aspects, you know, in terms of fitting into his performance model. Um, so I was given a good opportunity to, to lead a lot of strength and conditioning work with the first team. Um, Nick did obviously a lot of the, um, Nick did a lot of the field-based work. Um, and then as we got further and further into the season, um, I then got an opportunity to then work closely with the physiotherapy department who were 
getting players back fit who weren't quite ready to transition into the first team. And Nick was working really hard with the coaching staff, working on the team structure. Um, so, yeah, it became an opportunity for me to then, you know, support the first team players, get back into into sort of, you know, back into team training. Um, and then again, I, I talk about kind of our side of the fence. Like I was very lucky as well to work with some really good physios who, you know, a lot of them have been ex-players and, you know, could draw upon really good examples of conditioning drills that they did. And, you know, I think they understood the requirements. You know, they they worked the, the players extremely well and they created a really good environment around rehab as well, which I think helped. Mm. Not And the players didn't enjoy being injured. Um, but at the same time, they weren't, when players were injured, it wasn't a negative environment. They really sought upon the opportunity. So when they, when I got the chance to work with them, they were really on the ascendancy. You know, they'd been in a good place. They'd been well looked after. They were nearly there and they were, you know, becoming to a point where they could pretty much do everything. They just needed that little bit of work to transition them in. So, yeah, that's how it came about, really. And yeah, it was, I was really lucky to do it. And I really enjoyed it, really, because, you know, when, when they can do a little bit more football-specific work, I think that helps when some of them earlier days when they're just out doing maybe just running base activities, not quite the best gig, is it really? No, that's it. And I, and I wanted to ask about your use of football circuits. Um, it's something we spoke about on message. And because uh, I think this is interesting because we've not we've talked about NSAGE rehab before, but we've not necessarily gone into detail on on the use of, of football circuits. So what was like your reasons for using them? But then also, how did your how did your approach change when you had different injuries, different players, different positions? Um, and is it just a case of then opening up creativity and and thinking about like the demands of what the player is going to do back out on the pitch? Yeah. So I mean, the idea came it came both from from Nick and Steve Jones, really. Um, so. The football circuits fitted into the same model that that Nick was putting in with the first team, where they would work different condition games in terms of extensive, extensive, intensive, or your medium size, and then your intensive blocks. Um, so they were kind of how we categorised them, and then the kind of detail of the of the circuits was something that that Steve was doing with some academy players. Um, and in short, it was working on, we had like agreed pitch sizes um, throughout the throughout the club, or at least the top end of the academy to start with into the first team. Um, so we, again, we would select which block we were working on um, and periodise that through the week. And, and in short, if you imagine a, like a football pitch, it, it kind of works in the sense of working in one corner up to the halfway point, you did an explosive football action. And you could then shape that to be position specific or specific to the injury, whether it involves you know, maybe a hamstring injury, some longer kind of stride work, um, something more knee dominant, a bit more cutting and change of direction. <clears throat> up to the halfway point, they then jogged for a bit up to the end of the, like, the block and then walked across the short side and then repeated the process back. So in a way, we were working on the principle of explosive action, jog, walk, or sprint, jog, walk. And I know the game's not obviously not that structured, um, but it allowed us to like implement, like I saw, I 
football specific circuit style and and it was really good actually I really liked the idea of it the players really liked it because they were getting fit but also doing football specific work and it and in a way it was a lot of disguise running um so yeah we, we molded it in in the sense that we worked from extensive extensive intensive and intensive patterns um and what we tried to do is if the team was working to a particular time so if it was uh, for instance like 11 v 11 two 10 minute blocks we would try and look at could we then build them up to that two 10 minute block of that circuit um we'd we would structure some of the exercises around the injury um but then like a big thing you know we talked about transparency earlier and that was a i think that's where i had good success with them with first team players because i allowed them to kind of create their own circuits um i've never i've never played football to any like respectable level at all um always been a, a really high enthusiast and and very good at being able to see situations and be able to try and mimic those but ultimately a player knows best you know they they do them actions all the time so I think once we got to points where they were walking across, I'd say, right, okay, you need to think of something that you're doing in your recovery um, to do here, specific to your position. And I think what that got them a little bit, it probably added more value because they weren't just walking and switching off. Mm. They were then starting to process things and think about what they were doing. And, and it gave them a chance to maybe work on something they weren't so good at or actually reinforce something they were good at so when they went back in they could then the coach would then go yeah we've missed we've missed that from that player and and it was good because you know they became involved in the process and and it was good because at the time there were two or three players doing it and you know there's always a lot you have to make it fun I guess and you know you'd say to this player right, right design something they're all going to do and you know you might have a striker in there because I don't know I'm going to do that <laughs> but you know, the other end you then do it the other way and but it was good. Like we, we really enjoyed that. And, and the physios were involved in that as well, which sometimes helps. Um, and it did. And, and then we got a little bit, of rec- we got some good recognition from, from the, the head coach at the time when we were doing it. They said that when players were coming back in, they didn't look out of place. Um, and that's good. At, you know, I think it added that, that little bit of decision making and, you know, that's that data rich environment that, you just don't get through your traditional conditioning methods. Um, so yeah, I really liked it, and we, you know, we tracked a lot of that through GPS. We found quite, we, you know, we found good, good figures in respect to like meterage, um, high, well, depending on the size, you know, specific metrics whether it was accelerations, decelerations, or high speed running. Um, and we then, as we developed our figures more we, we looked at things like what some of the peak demands of games were you know we were finding that some of these were comparable in terms of just relative speed um we probably didn't do enough work to look at some of the acceleration based demands but you know in terms of a, a locomotive point of view we were actually seeing that yeah some of this is is not far off some of the peak demands of match play which which again gave us more confidence to then say so physio, here's what's done. Here's why it relates. Here's why it relates to the team, what they're doing, and and again, it, it, I think it improved a lot of confidence as well in the player to go back in to full time training. Yeah, really, really good idea, and yeah, definitely, definitely recommend something like that. 
Yeah, I was actually going to ask about how much you um, incorporate the player in the design because um, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because like you said, not only are they play at a higher level, so they've experienced the, the sort of maybe speed of the game, the sort of players they're playing against and the players they're playing with, but it's also developing their confidence maybe in certain movements. Maybe it was the movement that did the injury or similar. Um, yeah. So that the confidence side of things... Um, and I suppose the psychologically, the psychological side in general comes into play as, as much as the physical side, doesn't it, in, in that sort of environment? Yeah, that's it. And, you know, like, we were, we were in some really good instances where other players would see it as well and you could incorporate them into it, where, you, you know, you kind of say, come on, what's he not good at? And then you go, all right, go on. And, you know, you'd have that, the players would have that bit of interaction as well. And, and I think that really helps. Like, you know, there were players that then supported that if they'd finished training, say, right, you stand there and you're going to run to him and, and do that with him and, and move on. And, you know, that wasn't, that were in very rare circumstances. Um, but again, it worked with coaches as well. A couple of coaches came to watch it. And I think that helps as well because, you know, a player will very often say what they're good at and then what they're not good at is a little bit less. But I think a coach will really go, yeah try and work on that but then we got coaches involved in that as well and you know it does help when you've got more than one member of staff doing it um because then you don't have to kind of run between the circuits I think I certainly got fitter from doing them anyway (laughs) when there's a coach at the other end as well like you know they could incorporate certain aspects as well but you know at the end of the day the, the players play the game don't they when when they cross the line they see all the pictures and yeah, that was really important to, you know, it's that little bit of respect, isn't it, to say, you know, I know what, I know that you know what you're doing. So let's, let's celebrate that and let's try and, let's try and work on that. But then at the same time, let's also acknowledge we're, we're not all perfect. So what can we do there? And yeah, different incentives and things like that. So in X amount of hits or X amount of target shots, and you know, if you if you hit this, then you don't have to do the sprint to the finish. You can just jog to the finish, or if you miss, it's it's there back there, and and it did it. It, cre- it became a, a fun drill to do, um, which is nice, really. It, it makes the job so much easier. Again, everyone's having their input, isn't it? I suppose it's like we spoke about before when we're talking about parents and coaches and players and everything. Like it's only the same, isn't it, with with first team that the you're getting the input from everyone, aren't you? So players can give their experiences, physios can give their views on what the sort of things they want you to tick off and then maybe the movements they want you to do. You've that you can then control pitch size or whatever it is. So everyone's having their input to to get the best um guess best results at the end of it i suppose yeah absolutely and and like you say that the difficulty the only difficulty with that just comes from being able to just manage it and fit it together you know and making sure that some of the tasks weren't too long in duration that it almost it lost its momentum but in a way it did make made my life miles easier because i didn't have to think of many things yeah um but that, yeah, really useful to do. And I think it, it well, <laughs> you have to ask the players really, but I think it probably improved my credibility as a practitioner to then 
you know, they thought, well, yeah, he's got good ideas, but actually he recognises me for me. And, you know, I became part of it. And it wasn't just about his rehab and what he wants to do. It was about me and, you know, it was player driven then. So, yeah, it was, it was like you say, the more, the more. And again, I, I learned so many things that like I just didn't know and didn't really appreciate. Um and we have some, we've got some great coaches there. They have and they have had in the past. So it was great to then say, you know, another coach go, but what about that? And it was like a penny drop moment. You think, oh, right, yeah, I never even thought of that. And that's that's not that complicated. So, right, okay, let's let's do that. And or in fact, rather than doing that, would you mind showing me? Or if you yeah. took that side, and I yeah. took this side, and yeah, it was great because. Players developed, but I developed at the same time. I then learned that technical side of it as well, um, which is good. You know, I think that's a big thing, bridging that gap between the science and the football. It always helps. Definitely, yeah. Well, if any Bolton players want to get in touch and let us know what they thought of uh, the <laughs> <laughs> then feel free. <laughs> Jack, we'll move it on, mate. That was, that was awesome detail. I, I really enjoyed that. I think that the... the sort of progression on your career it's worked well on the podcast talking about the academy first and then onto the end stage so, so i hope people have taken plenty from that which i'm sure they will have done um but we'll just go on to some of the questions that we wrap the podcast up with um first one and i know you've mentioned quite a few people already so i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure some of these people come into play with this one as well but some of the biggest influences on your career so far yeah great question i think the terrible answer to that is everybody I've worked with had a, had a really big influence. But if I went from back to front, um, in the early stages, I worked with people like Kevin Till and Ben Jones, who are really good practitioners who've driven like the rugby industry forward. Um, they were really big on being able to put applied research into practice and develop good research questions, which affected my programming. Uh, I went to Sunderland and I worked with uh, John Curry, who went up to Celtic from there. Um, we, we all we were the two outside lads from the area, so we lived together. But John was really, really hard physiologist. So anything I asked, it was instantly questioned, and at times really uncomfortable because there were times where maybe I'd, I hadn't put enough reasoning, clinical reasoning into it. And yeah, John really tightened that up. And you know, it was great to learn his kind of level of physiology and understanding. And then time at Bolton, I'd say Nick and Steve. Um, Nick so much for like his mentorship and, and being line manager and you know he kind of gave me opportunity to work in the first team dropped me in the deep end um, and Steve because of his you know he's had such big um, yeah sorry he's had, he's had roles all over the world and worked with different coaches different cultures and his ability to then influence coaches you know be able to work with a coach to fit the training into their methodology. So, yeah, really, really, really good. Yeah, no, that's cool. And I was going to try and dig out what number podcast Nick was on, and I can't remember. So <laughs> anyone can have a flick back through. I need to get Nick back on, definitely. Um, well, next one, mate. What would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? I think over the years, I think probably my best strength is being able to, to work with different people and different personalities and, be able to kind of fit the science into their journey. So it's not always a hard science. It's being able to link the well, the science and the football in more recent years, but 
Um, I've worked with players that have had like uh, massive SNC enthusiasm, but then athletes that really they just well, we have to do the gym. But being able to work with different personalities and and give them that kind of buy, create that little bit of buy-in with them, and you know, ultimately make things about them really try and add to their journey. Yeah, definitely. And then just finally, what would you say if you had to give people a bit of advice on how you feel or your approach to CPD or something that you've taken the most from recently, podcast, webinar, course, like is there anything that stands out for you that you feel has impacted you or your practice? Um, well, that's a good question. Yeah, I think, you know, I think listening to like, to podcasts is a, is a really useful one. And that sounds really biased at being on a podcast now. Um, <laughs> and I don't think my episode will, will influence many people. Um, I think ultimately, I think it's about listening to, to different people and having that appreciation for different approaches. Um, yeah, there's something I'd say this. I think I've learned most from people's stories that they've told rather than maybe some of the science in it. Because you do, you, you work really hard to learn all the science and apply it. But you do hear the stories of when you think, oh, I did that. And the science was really robust, but it all crashed down. Um, and then, yeah, I think the other thing was, you know, having interviews, I think. I think I learned a lot about yeah, that's myself a great and others in interviews. And, you know, in, in past years, I've had somewhere, um, some have said you may have been a bit conservative, Others have said, you know, you maybe were a little bit too stretched in that. And I think that's, I think they're always like really big learning curves. I think when you push yourselves into them, whether it's discussions or, you know, interviews, I think they're, they're always good. And yeah, for any young practitioners, I think, you know, try and try and immerse yourself in some of the conversations and, you know, almost be uncomfortable being uncomfortable. You know, I, I learned the most when I didn't know things and I knew that I didn't know. Um, but then I realised that if I was going to go anywhere, I, I had to at least get to their level of understanding. Yeah, no, that's a great point about the interviews, actually. And it's, someone, it's something that people have... No, I don't think anyone's mentioned it in this, this section of it so far, but I fully agree. Like, I was going to say, if you've not had a bad interview, that sounds really bad. I don't mean a bad interview. I mean that if you've gone into an interview and not got the job and got feedback, that can be really powerful, can't it? Because it gives you areas to focus on. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, everybody's aware of like their own individual weakness, but, and the interviews are really hard, aren't they? Because you pitch yourself in the best way. And, you know, as we often hear, there's no right and wrong way. It just might not be the right fit. But yeah. it's just having that appreciation for how different clubs work. Yeah. And, and each club structures things differently. I, I had a, an interview with Hartbury College once and I had to deliver like an eight-minute video on a framework for change direction in rugby union women. And, and that itself was such a, a, a great experience because I hadn't worked in rugby for a while. Change direction is, is a really complicated topic. Female athlete is, again another interesting topic because of additional considerations um and then being able to, to deliver that in eight minutes but it's something that i wouldn't have i wouldn't have gone and sought out that kind of cpd no um, and not because i didn't value it just because i just wouldn't have thought of it and so yeah so i think stuff like that's always always helpful and like i i 
tried to then stay in touch with interviewers who, when I've not been successful, but I've had, you know, positive feedback or, you know, some good constructive feedback to try and like maintain that relationship with them as well. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Really, really good. Jack, this has been great, mate. Really, really enjoyed the chat. Um, So thank you very much for coming on. Do you want to just give, um, in terms of social media, if people wanted to get in touch, ask any questions, where would you direct them? Uh, I think probably Twitter's a good one. I'm not, I mean, if you looked at my Twitter, you wouldn't think I actually existed on it because I never write anything. But I I am intending to do that a bit more. Um, So in terms of, of... a Twitter, I'm always on that. Um, and in fact, actually, with the CPD, I think that's a really good one. Twitter, I always yeah. find great stuff on there, um, as well as some funny videos as well that you always get on there about <laughs> like um, cats and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, my Twitter handle is uh, jfay22, so spelled J F A H E Y 2 2. Um, yeah, so that's me. So yeah, more than happy, I'd be more than happy to and reach out and, and speak to anybody and um and like you say, I have that sort of in-depth discussion with anything that's I can help people with. Perfect, mate. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I know you're currently away as well, a little, little trip away mm-hmm. at the moment, so you're giving up time. So thank the missus as well for uh, allowing you <laughs> an hour of chatting to me. Um, and enjoy the rest of your break, mate, and we'll um, we'll stay in touch. But thanks a lot for coming on. No problem. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity, Ben, and uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up again. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the podcast and big thanks to Jack for coming on as well. Um, special thanks as well to Steve Barrett for the link up um, with Jack. It was really good to speak to him. I think we covered some great stuff in this one. In terms of some takeaways from me, we spoke about um, the importance of being able to adapt in a role. And we've spoke about that a lot of times, but also we spoke about being transparent transparent with all the different stakeholders so parents coaches the players um, it might be other members of staff and that was really important and I know Jack Jack highlighted that as well um, he also spoke about managing injured players or managing sorry not injured players managing players that are going through growth um, growth spurts within the academy so keeping high-risk players in sessions um players sharing workloads and being able to adapt those sessions. But again, keeping all all the stakeholders, um, keeping them involved in the process and and letting them know exactly why you're making the decisions or recommending certain things at certain times. Um, He also echoes what Frankie actually said in one of the previous podcasts in terms of, he said he was glad that he didn't get the lead role when Nick Allenby came into Bolton because he learned a hell of a lot from him. It sounds like Nick was like a mentor figure for him as well. So that's interesting. Um, and that's obviously something that, that Frankie spoke about. He also touched on the fact that having an injury needs to be switched and into a positive, that it's an opportunity for players to get better. And it was something they worked on creating that culture at Bolton, that being injured, being away from the, the pitch for a brief time, um, is actually an opportunity to get better. And then also, the, the stuff around football circuits is really interesting. I think he broke it down really well. But getting the players included in that process is really important because like we said in the episode, you can learn so much from the players. They've had a lot of experiences. They played at 
at really good levels. So we need to utilize not only other coaches, other, other members of staff, but also the players as well, because they can bring a lot to session design, um, making it football specific, and also getting into the psychologies to get them ready to return to performance as well. So big thanks to Jack for coming on. And again, thank you to Steve Barrett as well. Um, just a little one on that as well. If anyone's got any recommendations of future guests, I've got some really big guests lined up. And for episode 150 as well, a really special one. And I know you'll you'll um, really take plenty away from episode 150. So um, I won't say any more than that, but I'm really looking forward to getting that one out there. But if you do have any future recommendations of guests for the podcast, please get in touch. You can drop us a message on social media at footballfitfed on Instagram and Twitter or email us mail at footballfitfed.com. Thank you as always for listening to the podcast and I'll speak to you in episode 150.